From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Grateful that you are spending a few minutes with us today. Before we get going in the program, I hope that you will plan to join us in Standing for Life at the FRC and FRC Actions Pray Vote Stand Summit. At the summit, you'll hear from guests like Sam Brownback, Dr. Ben Carson, Oz Guinness, Mike Huckabee, Dr. Albert Moeller, Ali Beth Stuckey, and a whole bunch more. This year's summit will be held September 14th through the 16th at First Baptist Atlanta. Registration for the summit is now open. You can do so at prayvotestand.org slash summit. That's prayvotestand.org slash summit. We look forward to seeing you there. Today on the program, are progressive policies driving Hispanic voters away from the Democratic Party? Samuel Rodriguez from the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference will join us for that conversation. In addition, a new bill in Congress would give tax deductions for reproductive technologies. Is this a good pro-family bill or something to be concerned about? Katie Faust from Then Before Us will join us for that conversation. In addition, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, it meant that every state was going to decide the issue of abortion for itself. How's it going so far? We'll get an update from Aaron Holly with the Alliance Defending Freedom. But first, our headlines for today. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, announced yesterday the oft-criticized agency will undergo a reset to help the organization better respond to future health threats. Now, this announcement comes amid ongoing concerns regarding the CDC's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. While it is appropriate and even healthy for the center to acknowledge past mistakes, Many wonder if a reset under the same leadership is enough or if a complete overhaul is necessary. Joining me now to discuss it is Congressman and Dr. Andy Harris. He represents the 1st District of Maryland and is co-chair of the GOP Doctors Caucus. Congressman Harris, good to see you today. Good to be with you. We're going to talk about the CDC announcing a reset, but first let's talk about why a reset is necessary. You're a doctor. What are your reflections on the way the CDC handled COVID? Well, look, I think they they know they got a lot of it wrong. Uh, They know they were found withholding data, not making some data public, making some decisions on data that wasn't very good. And in the end, uh, you know, again, requiring or, or, or implying that children, small children, should get the vaccine, when I think that the evidence is pretty good that, that uh, it may do more harm than good. So, look, they know that the public has no trust in them. A reset, you're absolutely right, as you suggest, under the same leadership will result in the same, if not worse, issues. Now, on Tuesday, Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID czar, he said this about the new ways they're thinking about COVID. There's a really new way of thinking about who is going to get infected. We used to spend a lot of time talking about six feet of distance, 15 uh, minutes of being together. You know, we realized that's actually not the right way to think about this. That's not the the kind of the most accurate way to think about this. If you're outdoors um, with obviously by definition good ventilation, uh, you can be outside for long periods of time and not get infected. So context matters, crowds matter, ventilation matters. That is a major new update in the CDC guidance. Now, Dr. Harris, this is from Tuesday of this week. So we're talking a couple days ago. 
A lot of us have been saying precisely this for years, and we're not doctors. And we, we see something like that, and we're like, welcome to the party. And, and it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in the so-called experts when it seems like it takes them years to catch up with what many of us saw as just common sense. What's your reaction to that? You're absolutely right. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, everybody, if you go around and you just walk around outside anywhere in the country, you see people have figured this out. It is not risky to be outside without a mask. In fact, they figured out for most people, it's not very risky to be inside without a mask. So the bottom line is that, uh, you know, look, I'm glad the CDC acknowledges that they got a lot wrong. But I am a little worried about some of the steps they've taken that would make them be able to uh, to implement protocols even faster than before. And, you know, if you're implementing protocols on bad data, I, I don't really want it done quickly. Uh, I'd rather you take the time and look at good data. Again, as, as the uh, White House czar has suggested, it's taken the White House two years to figure out that outside is actually not very high risk. Now, tell us a bit more about the reset details as you understand them. What would they be doing differently next time than what they did last time? Well, one of the most one of the most worrisome things is that they want to make decisions based on what are called preprints, which are initial printings of, of, of articles, scholarly articles, before they undergo peer review, before they undergo the rigorous scientific review that you expect them to undergo before they're accepted into the body of science. So that means that the CDC will be even freer to use very preliminary data to change protocols or to implement protocols. For an, for an administration that prides itself on basing everything on science, which we know they haven't done, this will get them even further from basing things on science. Earlier this month, Dr. Fauci, to this question of what, what are they basing their decisions on, Dr. Fauci was in Seattle, and during a Q&A session, uh, here's one of the things that he had to say. What I symbolize in, a, in an era of the normalization of untruths and lies and and all the things you're seeing going on in society from January 6th to everything else that goes on, people the craving for consistency, for integrity, for truth. What's your reaction to this idea that uh, he kind of symbolizes this craving for, for truth and that's what people want the CDC for? I feel like we live in different universes. Uh, yes. You know, look, uh, Dr. Fauci was the one who said, don't wear masks before he said you have to wear a mask. Then you have to wear two masks. Then you have to wear multiple masks. He was the one who said, if you if you get the if you get the vaccine, you can't transmit it to others. These basically were was misinformation. These were untruths. These were this was his opinion being presented as sound science. And as we learned, it wasn't. Do you think that, well, in the context of this, in, in recent weeks, there's a lot of concern about the FBI, the Department of Justice very recently, about them behaving in ways that are driven more by uh, political uh, outcomes rather than maybe what the law requires. Do you think the CDC also has been politicized? Oh, there's no question about it. Uh, you know, the latest example is monkeypox. The fact of the matter is we have known, I mean, the scientific community has known for a long time that this latest wave of monkeypox is spread among men having sex with men. And yet for weeks, if not months, 
we were told that everybody is at risk of this. That's just not true. The data wasn't true. And to be politically correct, the CDC did not widely publicize early enough that this was a disease of men having sex with men. Had they done it earlier, we probably could have contained it a little better. Now, Dr. Harris, this is probably a, a, a longer conversation than our time allows here, but do you have any quick thoughts on how medicine became politicized, how we got to this point where we can see announcements from the CDC and a significant percentage of the American public just kind of ignores it? Well, I think the most important way was that uh, there were people who really didn't like President Trump, and if he said X, they said Y. Uh, anything he said was not believed. Uh, again, the, the, the vaccines in the beginning when he was promoting them and saying, you know, we were going to develop them, you know, the, the uh, Democrats said, well, I wouldn't take it. And then when they became in power, they insisted everyone take it. Uh, this is highly politicized. I think that had a lot to do with it. Uh, the other thing is that we still have political appointees in very high positions, in scientific positions in the U.S. government. Uh, we should think very carefully about who we put into these positions to make sure that they will not politicize those positions. And Dr. Harris, what would you do to um, restore that trust between uh, the American people and the CDC and just kind of this idea of experts in general? Well, I think you have to point experts with a, with a wide variety of opinions. Uh, what we saw when Scott Atlas went into the White House and had a different opinion uh, under President Trump's administration from Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, he was ostracized instead of what's normally done in science is you listen to everyone and come up with a consensus. Uh, that's what needs to be done. You need yeah. people of differing opinions in these positions because that's the way real science works. Yeah. In biblical terms, we would say you need to be slow to speak and quick to hear. And in the political climate we live in, we are very quick to shut down uh, perspectives from tribes we don't like or just uh, conclusions that we don't like and very slow uh, to listen. But, Dr. Harris, I want to change topics with you because uh, this week President Biden signed the um, dubiously named Inflation Reduction Act. Here's what Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had to say about it. I am confident this bill will endure as one of the greatest legislative feats in decades. It'll lower costs, create millions of good-paying jobs, and is the boldest climate bill ever. Dr. Harris, do you share Senator Schumer's enthusiasm? No, look, this, this bill is a fiasco. This bill is a $450 billion tax and spend bill. And that's if you believe that these policies are not going to be forever policies. If you think that these policies are going to be extended longer, this is about a three-quarter of a trillion-dollar bill. Uh, again, the government doesn't have the money to do it. There was no pay-for, what we call a pay-for in this bill. So the government's just going to have to print this money. And if anybody thinks that subsidizing uh, these, these alternative energies will lead to lower costs for anyone, they're crazy. The fact of the matter is communist China knows how to, how to, how to del deliver energy for low cost, and that is to burn fossil fuel. We're competing with communist China. If we unilaterally disarm by increasing our cost of energy and taxing our people, we, our economy will suffer. Dr. Harris, earlier this month, you were on the program with Tony, and you referred to the uh, medical savings in the bills as smoke and mirrors. Have you learned anything since then to change that assessment? 
No, the fact the fact of the matter is these are these are pie in the sky promises. Uh, the only thing that that will, will that predictably will happen is the is the cost of insulin will go down for people on Medicare because it's limited to thirty five dollars a month, and for everyone else the cost will go up. The cost of new medicines will go up for everyone except those people who are on Medicare, but that will be years down the line. And uh, again, this these are pie in the sky uh, ideas. They won't work. Uh, this will do more, much more harm than good to the health of the American public. We've got about a minute left. What should the federal government be doing to reduce medical costs for families? Well, the most important thing is, is to introduce complete price transparency, which is what President Trump did in his last year. He insisted that medical providers, including hospitals and insurance companies, that they publish what they're paying for things. Uh, you know, medis- medical care is one of the few things that you have. You really have no idea what it's going to cost when you go in to, to see a doctor or go to a hospital for an operation. This is different from everything else we do uh, in our economy. And the, the fastest way to bring down medicine, medical costs is to just have complete transparency in the, econ- in the healthcare economy. It does seem obvious, and you're right, that uh, very few other services. We get bids when we build a house. Uh, we know the price of things when we walk into the grocery store, but there is a a veil of uh, secrecy over the prices of everything inside the hospital, and that does seem like that would be helpful. Congressman Dr. Andy Harris, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up next, are progressive values costing progressive candidates the support of Hispanic voters? We'll have that conversation with Samuel Rodriguez from the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, We are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. 
To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldviews monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose. Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Website is TonyPerkins.com. The belief among many in the nation's capital that Democrats are demographically destined to any day now become the only winning party has been an axiom for more than 20 years. And just as worldwide destruction from climate change remains always just around the corner, this emerging Democratic majority never quite arrives either. This belief was partially fueled by a belief pushed hard by Democrats themselves that immigration from Latin America would allow them to steadily import reliable voters. But this has not happened. In fact, it appears the opposite may be happening. Why? Joining me now to discuss it is Pastor Samuel Rodriguez. He's the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. Pastor Rodriguez, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to see you. First, I want to start out with some terms because we are introducing new terms. We're redefining old terms. Can you help us understand what this Latinx, Latinx thing is all about? How do you even pronounce that? You don't because it's a silly descriptor. It's an illogical nomenclature. It makes no sense. A recent poll, 92% of all Hispanics, Latinos, reject vehemently the term Latinx. Talking about white privilege, Latinx is the construct of white liberal elites attempting to create a perpetual victimization mentality and class labeling Hispanics as Latinx. That's just wokeism and the cancel culture coming together. So Latinx is a term rejected by over 92% of Latinos, Hispanics, so it's a silly term. It makes yeah. no sense. Again, it speaks to the cuckoo for Cocoa Puff season we're living in. Well, do you have a sense of what the motivation behind this is? Because I'm assuming, though I don't know, that uh, because if you said Latina or Latino, those are gendered terms, yeah. right? And they don't like gendered yeah. language. Is this, is this an attempt to make the entire Spanish language genderless? Completely. It's, not an, it, it is, it's, it's more than an attempt. Yeah. It's a political, cultural, social construct exercise. Indeed. It's this idea of we, there, are, there is no gender yeah. in the Latino community. We, we repudiate the notion of gender, of male and female in the Latino community. When, but you can't. 
Because as Latinos, as you well know, Pew Research, we, we are strongly faith-driven. We, we are the most, quote-unquote, Christian demographic, according to Pew, in America. So our faith ethos is biblically derived, very Christ-centered. We believe in faith. We believe in science. We believe in human biology, human physiology. So guess what? Yeah, it's Latino and Latina. It's Hispanic American, and here we are. And nothing they will say will be able to change it. Well, it does feel like if you accept the term uh, Latinx or however you pronounce that, that you're on the path to just basically determining the entire Spanish language is is transphobic or whatever term you want to use, because even the nouns are all gendered terms in Spanish and you couldn't even speak Spanish in general. But I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I want to I want to explore whether the left's insistence on using this term is evidence of just broader ignorance of what the Hispanic community cares about. Completely. It's, it's an example of it. It's one of the reasons why we have Myra Flores. It's one of the reasons why we have this amazing, amazing exodus. You're privy to it. You've seen all the polling. Yeah. The amazing exodus from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, or at least independent. You're seeing Latinos saying, look, we're, we, are, we are primarily Christian conservative, either Catholic or evangelical. Very few Latino Episcopalians. Yeah. So they're, they're shifting over. And one of the reasons is Latinx. This idea that, that a group of people can do away with our language, our faith. Latinx is anti-Christian, by the way, but it's anti-Latino, anti-Spanish language. So it's just one example. It's also the embracing of socialism and communism. A- AOC, Venezuela, Bolivia, Cuba, all of these things, Latinos are going, are you kidding? We don't want that model. Absolutely not. So it's Latinx plus socialism, communism, plus late-term abortion, plus plus the parental rights, this idea that a 36-year-old can speak to a 6-year-old about sex and not be called a pedophile, Latinos are saying, not in our watch. So all of these things coming together is the reason we're having Latinos exit the Democratic Party. Now, you mentioned Mira Flores there, and for those who may not be familiar with her, she's a newly elected congresswoman from Texas. She won the 34th district in Texas by seven points. Why is that important? It's an 84 percent Hispanic district, which is the second most Hispanic district in the U.S., It went for Obama by 23 points. It went for Clinton by 22 points. It went for Biden by four points. And now, for the first time in 150 years, a Republican is representing that district in Congress. It's a data point that represents a dramatic shift uh, from one party to the other. Uh, Samuel Rodriguez, is this something where the Hispanic community has been slow to catch up with the American political scene? Or is this something where the left has moved so radically to the left so quickly that uh, they're alienating people who would otherwise vote for them? It's definitely the latter. It's the latter. It's no longer the party of Bill Clinton, the party of Jimmy Carter, or even the party of Obama in 2008. Obama ran as a centrist or a moderate or maybe slightly left of center. It's no longer that. This is radical, extreme, progressive, liberal anti-Christian, anti-family, anti-truth, totalitarian, authoritarian ideologies. And Latinos are going, your party no longer represents any of my values, hence the massive exodus. And I think it's the beginning of a, of a great shift. Latinos are going to become the most important independent voting bloc who will vote more and more with the Republican Party for years to come. Surprise, surprise, surprise. 
We've only got a minute left, but we haven't even mentioned the issue of immigration. And kind of political conventional wisdom has been if you want a secure border on the southern part of the country, that means you don't like Hispanic people, you're racist, and that is a failing policy with the Hispanic community. What say you? Why are Hispanics voting more and more conservative Republican? We want the border secured. We want people coming here legally, not illegally. We must stop all illegal immigration. We are reinforcing cartels, sex trafficking. This impacts our communities, fentanyl. Latinos are vehemently opposed to open borders and against the Biden administration's currency open door policy. Pastor Samuel Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Coming up next legislation that would provide tax deductions for in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, and sperm and egg donations. Is this pro-family or not? Katie Faust from Them Before Us joins us when we come back here on Washington Watch. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. California Congressman Adam Schiff, a Democrat, has proposed a bill called the Equal Access to Reproductive Care Act. His bill would make reproductive costs such as IVF, surrogacy, and sperm egg donation automatically tax deductible. Many states already allow tax deductions of this kind, but only after a demonstrated period of infertility. Why is this not enough? 
Joining me now to discuss the bill is Katie, Fa Katie Faust, founder and director of Them Before Us. Katie, good to see you today. Thanks for having me on, Joseph. Now, you've written a, 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 a bill, not a bill, you've written an article critical of this legislation, uh, but we're a pro-family organization. We like children. Shouldn't we be excited about legislation that encourages people to have kids? We do love children. We love babies, but we don't like commodifying babies. And we don't like violating the natural rights of babies. We already know that children have a right to life. And we have built 50 years of campaigns against the violation of this fundamental child right. But we also believe that children have a right to their mother and father. And that is what this bill is going to seek to do, is violate that fundamental child right. Um, it's really not the Equal Access to Reproductive Care Act. It really is the subsidizing intentional motherless and fatherless act. And it needs to be opposed. And Katie, tell us a bit more about how it does that. Why does this bill separate kids from their parents? Yeah. So what they're doing is they're redefining the term infertility. Previously, if you were deemed infertile, then you could get these tax deductions um, for medical care and reproductive services. Um, but usually that meant a heterosexual couple who was having unprotected sex for 12 months. And so presumably, even if you were using these services, um, you were the child was still going home with their mother or father, or at least a mother and father. But that definition of infertility was deemed insufficiently inclusive because it excludes people who are not able to be deemed infertile in the traditional sense. And so they are redefining infertility because the reality is that many of these same-sex couples or single adults, single men and single women who are going to seek these services are totally fertile, but their relationship status is not. And so in the name of equality and inclusivity, we are redefining infertility so that single men, single women, and same-sex couples can have these subsidized services. And of course, all of these children are going to go home with adults where there is going to be either a mother or a father missing from their home. And Katie, this is where we get this concept of gay infertility, which many people probably haven't heard of, but it's being introduced like so many new terms are. And this idea of gay infertility is, well, we have to t treat those who are gay infertile the same as those who are heterosexually infertile. But that will uh, quickly become ridiculous to those who think about that, because, of course, the nature of the relationship is inherently infertile. But Katie, you and them before us, you work on this idea that the rights of children should be put before the rights of the adults. And of course, the desire for children is natural and it's healthy, in fact. But in your work, why do you think it's not preferable for children to be introduced into situations where they will, by definition, uh, be missing either their mother or their father, or perhaps both? Well, first of all, because children have a right to be known and loved by their mother and father. Um, and when they're denied that right, they are often put in households that are more stable and uh, unstable and more risky. Um, second, because when we honor that fundamental child right, when a child goes home with both their mother and father from the hospital, they are guaranteed to have the maternal and paternal love that maximizes child development. And finally, 
When a child's right to their mother and father is honored, that means they also get access to something that children crave, and that is their genetic identity, their biological identity. And we know that children conceived through third-party reproductive technologies overwhelmingly agree that this donor that contributed half of their genetics is actually their biological parent, their own father or their own mother. And it's a relationship that these children crave. They long to know the person that gave them life. And so these technologies, and certainly the government subsidizing these technologies, is harming children on every level that you can harm them in terms of their uh family stability, in terms of their developmental um, capacity, and in terms of their own identity development. So these are not things that anybody should be encouraging, and it's certainly not something the government should be subsidizing. Katie, we only have about a minute left. I know you actually speak to a lot of these now adults who were who came into the world through reproductive technology. What do they tell you about the impact this has on kids? Yeah. Genealogical bewilderment, right? The idea of like, I don't know who I am because I don't know from whom I came. Feelings of commodification. Almost half of them are disturbed that their conception was a financial transaction. Longing to know their missing parent, longing to know their dozens or maybe hundreds of half siblings out in the world. And also feelings of being designed, purchased, that eugenics played a role in this. So regardless of who is using these technologies, single, married, gay, or straight, these are child-harming technologies that need to be rejected. And to that point, and, and your organization is appropriately named Them Before Us, the, the big E on the eye chart here is adults have to put the needs of the children in front of us as the adults, and if we don't, bad things happen. Katie Faust, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, in the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court returned the battle over abortion to the states. That means we have 50 different state battles raging at once. When we come back, we'll talk to Aaron Holly from the Alliance Defending Freedom about how all of that is going. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? 
Just text STAN to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAN to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today and so thrilled that you are with us. You are a high school or university student. You are invited to join us for a special free worldview session, the Pray Vote Stand Summit on Friday, September 16th from 4 to 7 p.m. You're aware of the Pray Vote Stand Summit that's happening there that week from September 14th through the 16th. But on Friday, September 16th, we hope college and high school kids will join us for a worldview session from 4 to 7 p.m. Wrestle with the biggest and hardest questions about critical race theory, LGBT, whatever, uh, how to deal with grace and love in a crazy, crazy world. You've got questions. We've got answers. I'm excited to be there. I hope you'll be there with me. Register at prayvotestand.org slash summit. That's prayvotestand.org slash summit. We'll see you there. Following the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe versus Wade this summer, the battle to protect life in the womb returned to the states with disappointments like in Kansas, but victories as well with trigger laws going into effect. And in addition, when Indiana passed the first statewide abortion ban since the Dobbs decision was made. Clearly, challenges remain for the pro-life cause as we now work state by state to protect life. And joining me now to discuss the legal challenges, the legislative challenges, and the decisions happening all over the country is Erin Hawley. She's the senior counsel to the appellate team at Alliance Defending Freedom, who helped the state of Mississippi draft the merits and reply briefs for the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe. Erin, thanks for taking some time for us today. So glad to be here. Thank you. Well, first, just from a high level, tell us how you would describe what has happened in the states since Roe was overturned. 
Well, you know, it's really been just an amazing time um, uh, in the pro-life movement. We are seeing state after state uh, being able to protect law. There's a couple of different buckets of sort of state protections that are coming online. Uh, The first bucket is what you referred to as trigger laws. Uh, So trigger laws were efforts by states who said, you know, we want to protect life. We believe that life is valuable in the womb. Uh, We believe that every child uh, has a right to life, that life is a human right, and we want to protect life. Uh, However, uh, the outrageous Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade forbid states from doing this. So what state legislatures did is they said, in the event that Roe was overturned, our state law will protect life as follows. And so these were called trigger laws. When and if Roe was overturned, uh, as it was thankfully in the Dobbs decision, then these states were able to protect life. So we had 13 You you were were anticipating my question. Go ahead and tell me how many states there had those. So absolutely. So 13 states uh, had these trigger laws, and most of those have gone into effect. Uh, Some have been enjoined uh, by courts uh, as we work out those legal battles. Uh, But 13 states protected life with trigger laws. Then there were about nine states that had what were known as pre-row regulations of abortion. And so these states uh, kept on the books uh, laws that protected life. Uh, Roe said those were unconstitutional, uh, so they were unenforceable. But after the Supreme Court, again, thankfully overruled Roe, uh, then these state laws came back online. Uh, And so the group I work for, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, is helping states defend both their trigger laws uh, and their pre-Roe prohibitions uh, of abortion. And you discuss, you explained well what the trigger laws are, how the how those worked, and we are today grateful for the lawmakers in those various states who had the foresight and the courage uh, to take up the cause, even when they could not be confident that these laws would ever go into effect, and and now lives are being changed because of that. But you mentioned that in some of those states, courts have enjoined the trigger laws from going into effect. What's going on in those states? Why would a, would a court be able to stop a trigger law from going to effect when the Supreme Court has already said Roe versus Wade is no longer valid? So, so absolutely. So uh, it's an abuse of judicial power uh, for these various state uh, lower courts uh, to prohibit states from protecting life. And the way they're doing this in many states is that lower courts are finding a right to an abortion in state constitutions. Um, While states are perfectly free to give additional protections, uh, some give additional liberty protections, uh, for example, uh, there really is no basis in any of these state constitutions for finding a right to an abortion. As Justice Alito's opinion explained uh, so coherently, there's nothing about a right to privacy that would include the right to terminate an unborn child's life. That's different from every other right uh, that the Supreme Court or any other state court has recognized. Uh, So this idea that a state's right to privacy might protect uh, a woman's uh, right to an abortion um, is something that the lower courts are making up uh, and are making the very same mistake that the United States Supreme Court made in Roe versus Wade. And Aaron, my assumption is and and my belief is that these trigger laws exist in more conservative states. We're talking about red states. But now you're telling me that there are courts and there are judges within those red states 
that are that are stopping these trigger laws from going into effect. So is that the situation where we are in very conservative states still dealing with progressive judges who in many cases are making the same mistake that the Supreme Court originally did in Roe? Absolutely. And in several of Alliance Defending Freedoms cases in Wyoming and North Dakota and, and other places, that is exactly what has happened. You've had lower state court judges uh, who find this right to an abortion uh, in the state constitution, making the very same mistake uh, that the justices did in Roe versus Wade um, mm. and taking away the power from the legislators to protect life. Uh, as Justice Alito explained, this is so damaging to the democratic process. Uh, the state legislators in many of these states, uh, all of these states that have a trigger law, have said that we want to protect life, uh, that life is worthy of protection. And yet, once again, we have state courts and, and judges uh, finding a way to sort of subvert legislative intent uh, and, and to allow uh, this, this right to an abortion that takes the life of an unborn child. And in some states, I know these judges are elected and have been elected by the people, which is just another reminder of how important some of these local races are that feel obscure when we pick up our ballot, but in the long run can have a really big impact. But Aaron, in these cases, we know that it took 50 years to overturn Roe versus Wade. In these state battles where a, a judge has enjoined the enforcement of these trigger laws, are we going to have to wait 50 years in those states for these issues to be solved? Absolutely not. So, so these states are defending vigorously uh, these laws. Um, there are a few states that have pre-row laws on the books uh, in which uh, the governor or the attorney general has declined to enforce these laws. Uh, but in that case, legislators, uh, Wyoming Right to Life and other groups are stepping in uh, to defend the laws. Um, and they will go up, uh, I think, rather expeditiously uh, to the state Supreme Courts. And, and we'll hopefully see some good results. Um, in Florida, uh, for example, the Florida Supreme Court, uh, in a decision in the 1980s, found a right to abortion in the Florida Constitution. Uh, but that right was based uh, on Roe versus Wade. Now that Roe is gone, um, I'm hoping that the Florida Supreme Court will revisit that. Uh, the Iowa Supreme Court, uh, in a case litigated by one of my colleagues at ADF, found exactly that. Uh, they found that a prior Iowa court was wrong uh, to find a right to an abortion, that it did not exist uh, in the Iowa Constitution. Um, and I think a faithful reading uh, of the state constitutions really gives you that result. There is no right to an abortion uh, anywhere in the constitution's text or structure or history, even when you look at state constitutions. And so the state legislature should be allowed to protect life. And it looks like we may have lost the connection. Erin Holly is on the road and we were as, as she's catching up with us from the road there in Missouri. And we are thankful for her doing that. I think we're going to work on getting her connection back. We got her back. Erin, thank you again for hanging with us. Um, now, you, you, what I was saying Sorry the, about that. No, it, it's okay. It's the wonders of technology. We're we're thankful that we get you in the way that we can, and and we will endure uh, the technological challenges here. But I think the evidence is clear that the lawyers are going to be very busy in the states uh, because of this. But it's not just the lawyers who are going to be very busy. A lot's going to happen at the state legislative level as well. Legislatures have already gotten active. I referenced the vote that happened in Kansas, which did not go well for the live cause. 
states like Indiana are taking up legislation. Other states are, are responding in the political way, which they should. And that's that's the body that should be making these decisions. But what's the landscape across the country in the state legislatures? So I think it's really hopeful. Uh, as you mentioned, for the very first time in 50 years, states are allowed to protect life. Uh, we know so much more uh, about a baby's development uh, than we did when Roe uh, happened. We know that babies likely feel pain uh, at 15 weeks or even earlier. And the state legislators are able to take all of this knowledge and evidence um, and use it to protect life um, and to explain to constituents, uh, voters uh, themselves, uh, can tell their elected representatives. Uh, we believe that life begins at conception. Uh, we think our state should protect life. Um, and so that really is a key, a key battleground here. Now, Aaron, now that this does go back to the states, there are some challenges in the pro-life community because there are issues. There are challenging issues within the, the, the pro-life legislation and within the pro-life community. Should women be criminally prosecuted for having an abortion? Should exceptions for rape and incest be included in this legislation? How do you see these questions playing themselves out in the states that a majority of the legislature does want to protect life? So I think there's some answers to some of these questions. Um, and you mentioned women for example, um, Alliance Defending Freedom believes that, that women are the second victim of abortion, that abortion always uh, harms one life. It, it takes that life, uh, but it also harms a second life, and that the abortion industry has preyed upon vulnerable women uh, who are in a difficult situation, and that states now have the ability to come alongside those women and provide them with the resources and support they need uh, to flourish during pregnancy uh, and beyond, uh, to offer adoptions uh, and also support uh, if they choose to parent. Um, and so some of those things, I, th I think we'll see state legislatures, as far as I know, uh, no state um, is, is seriously considering, um, certainly no state has uh, a law that criminalizes uh, the woman. Um, they go after a big abortion, after Planned Parenthood and other providers. Um, and then there's other issues uh, that states are going to work out on sort of a state-by-state -state basis, uh, as states determined uh, how they can be uh, the most protective of life uh, that is feasible uh, in each state. Yeah. Now, we're talking to Aaron Hawley with Alliance Defending Freedom. And, Aaron, we've got a few minutes left here. But I know even in the red states that have either trigger laws or they have pro-life laws and they are in effect mm -hmm. now, one of the challenges for protecting life has to do with chemical abortions and the transition that the abortion industry has made. And essentially, these are pills that are being sent through the mail. In some cases, uh, you're hundreds or thousands of miles away from the person who prescribes them and sends them to you, uh, being sent across state lines in the mail. So they're not uh, traceable. What are the challenges? How are states who want to prevent abortion from the moment of conception dealing with this technological challenge? Absolutely. That's a huge uh, enforcement challenge. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, these are coming across state lines. Um, they're approved by the FDA up till 10 weeks, uh, so much later um, than a number uh, of states. Uh, states have protected laws much uh, sooner uh, than 10 weeks. Uh, so this is a direct violation uh, of a number of state laws. And states have the authority to ban 
the intrastate shipment of harmful substances, certainly substances uh, that would kill one of their unborn citizens. Um, and there's also, it's really interesting, there's actually a federal statute, uh, it's called the Comstock Law, that banned the interstate shipment of abortion pills. Um, this law was unenforceable under Roe, but it's also still on the books. Um, if DOJ wanted to do something good, uh, this would be a really good law to enforce. Um, I don't see them doing that, but but I do see uh, a lot of states uh, moving to enforce their own uh, interstate uh, uh, shipment. Just just the idea that you cannot bring uh, harmful substances into the states; uh, those laws should be enforceable. Aaron, probably the last question. About a minute for this one. We've talked a lot about what states are doing well, but we know in a lot of other states, some blue states are moving the opposite direction to really incentivize abortion. What else are we seeing? Absolutely. So even after the oral argument in Dobbs, when we saw for the first time that it might actually be possible uh, for states to protect life. There have been a number of blue states uh, that have moved to what they call codify Roe, but actually goes much broader, allowing abortion for any reason at all up until the moment before birth. Uh, these laws are extremely uh, egregious. They're extreme. They go beyond the laws uh, of every European country and almost every country uh, in the world. And my hope uh, is that now that Roe is overturned, we can actually have the serious conversation. Do we want to be a state? Uh, some of these liberal states, do we want to be a state that allows abortion for any reason up until birth? Uh, and it certainly seems that the humane answer to that is no. Uh, so I'm hoping some of the blue states uh, will reconsider some of these extreme measures that have been passed. Yeah, we certainly share that uh, hope. Um, but it is interesting to see how the country is polarizing on this issue. And we saw the different ways we lived with masks for many years during COVID. Mm -hmm. And it, it appears that that scenario is developing on abortion as well. But Aaron Holly, thank you so much for uh, pulling over and taking some time for us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And friends, we hope that that helps you see what the situation is. And also you find your place in making a difference on behalf of life. We're thankful for your time today. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God, but nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.